0: السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونؤمن به ونتوكل عليه ونعوذ بالله من الشرور أنفسنا ومن سيئات أعمالنا من يحده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضل فلا هادي له ونشهد إله إلى الله وحده لا شريك له ونشهد أن محمد عبده ورسوله Sulla lahutala, alihi waala, alihi wa sahibi, Ubaraka wa selimat sleeman kathiran kathiran. Ama badu ka udhu willahim in a shaitan irregime, Bismillahir Rahman irrahim. In Allah hawamala, ikatahu, yisulun, alin nebiya, ayyuhaladina amanu, selu alihi wa selimat sleeman. Allahumma salli ala Muhammadin wa ala ala Muhammad kama sallayta ala Ibrahim wa ala, ala Ibrahima in innaka hamidun majid Allahumma barik ala Muhammadin wa ala ala Muhammad kama barikta ala Ibraheem wa ala ala Ibraheema innaka majid Respected listeners We gather once again for the Reading and commentary of a hadith from Sahih al Bukhari about the truce of Hudaybiyyah. For those of you who are studying from the original collection of Imam Bukhari, it's hadith number 2731. And for those who are studying from the abridged version, it's 11.92. I started the hadith last week with an introduction to the backdrop and the background to the events that ultimately led up to the truce of hudaybiyah <coughs> So today we'll just begin the hadith again and continue with the actual wording of the hadith. وبالسند المتصل مني الى الامام البخاري رحمه الله قال حدثني عبد الله بن محمد قال حدثنا عبد الرزاق قال اخبرنا معمر قال اخبرني الزهري قال اخبرني عرب بن الزبير عن المسود بن مخرمته يصدق كل واحد منهما حديث صاحبه قال I relate with an uninterrupted and continuous chain of narration from me to Imam Bukhari who with this chain which I have just recited says that Urwat ibn Zubayr related from Miswar ibn Makhramah and Marwan Each one of them attesting to the narration of his companion qala they both said kharaja rasulullah sallallahu wasallam, allah's messenger sallallahu wasallam, left i.e. medina and then the hadith continues now since i'm actually providing a commentary on the hadith i'd like to mention an important point here which is that who are the narrators of this hadith here, there are two narrators. One of them, one of them is Miswar ibn Makhramah عنه, and the other is Marwan ibn Al Hakam. Marwan, meaning Marwan ibn Al Hakam. They both said the Prophet sallallahu wasallam left Medina. Now, these are the two principal narrators of the hadith here. But for both of them. There are. There is a question. One, the second narrator, Marwan, who is Marwan, Marwan ibn al-Hakam, was the Umayyad governor who eventually became the Umayyad ruler, and he's the father of the famous Umayyad king and ruler Abdul Malik. Ibn Marwan. He was a cousin brother of Rasulullah and his secretary. And he was a somewhat controversial figure since he was implicated in a number of things. His father, Hakam, the Prophet ﷺ had actually banished him from Medina. So Marwan ibn al-Hakam, I won't delve into his character or personality, I've just mentioned a bit of history here. But the ulama in general do not classify him as a sahabi, as a companion. Even though he actually saw Rasulullah because he was born in the second year of Hijrah and then he didn't come to Mecca till after the conquest of Mecca, sorry, he didn't come to Medina till after the conquest of Mecca, by which time he was six years old. And he is not reported to have narrated anything from Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa The most he may have done is probably just seen him. But in general, the ulama do not classify him as a sahabi, as a companion. So that's as far as Marwan is concerned. When the hadith says Marwan, we are talking about the Umayyad governor who later became the Umayyad ruler, Marwan ibn al-Hakam. He was actually the cousin-brother of Uthman ibn Affan, radiyallahu an. The other narrator, Miswar. So the hadith, the principal narrators of the hadith are Miswar ibn Makhramah and Marwan, meaning Marwan ibn hakam I've just said what I've said about Marwan ibn hakam Miswar ibn Makhramah, radiyallahu He was a companion, but his story is similar in the sense that he, like Marwan, was born in the second year of Hijrah. They both share the same year of birth. And he also came with his father to Medina after the conquest of Mecca in the eighth year of Hijrah, again when he was six years old. But he is reported not only to have seen Rasulullah, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, but also to have narrated hadith from him, in the sense that he was present. When the Prophet ﷺ gave a khutbah on the mimbar, and one of the most famous narrators of that particular sermon, it wasn't a very long sermon, it was quite brief, the narrator is Miswar ibn Makhramah. Now both he and his father were Muslim. Now the ulama regard him as a companion, so they do regard Miswar ibn Makhramah as a sahabi. But... He was not present on this occasion at all, because he only came to Medina from Mecca at the age of six, after the conquest of Mecca. So he wasn't present at all at the time that this whole journey and these incidents took place. So we have two people narrating the hadith, Miswar the son of Makhramah radiyallahu anhu, who was a companion. Marwan ibn al-Hakam, who isn't regarded as a companion. Both of them were only four years old at the time of this whole narrative. And neither of them was present. In fact, nor had they known or seen Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam at that stage. may have heard of him, but they were four-year-old children. So, ultimately, here we have a hadith from Rasulullah sallallahu that isn't related by adult companions, anhum, who were present on the occasion. Murwan is not a companion, or he's not regarded as a companion by the ulama. Misur ibn Makhramah, wasn't present. So... It's very simple. Both Miswar ibn Makhrama and Marwan relate this hadith from other Sahaba radhiyallahu anhum. And it's clearly mentioned in another narration of Bukhari itself, where the wording is "yukbirani an Ashabi Rasulillahi sallallahu alaihi wasallam." That both Miswar ibn Makhrama and Marwan relate from the companions of Rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam. And who are those companions? And mughirat ibn Sharbah, Umar ibn al-Khattab, Ali ibn Abi Talib, Uthman ibn affan radiyallahu anhum, and others. Even Umm Salamah, radiyallahu So both of them related from these different companions. Anyway, that's an important point of hadith, so i clarified that for the students of ilm qala they both said kharaja rasulullah <laughs> sallallahu alayhi wasallam zaman al-hudaybiyyah the prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam left i.e., left medina during the time of hudaybiyah meaning on that journey when was this i explained last week on the, the prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam left medina on the monday at the beginning of dhul hijjah in the 6th year of hijrah he left Medina with approximately 1,500 sahaba radhiyallahu anhum with the intention of traveling to Mecca for the first time after the hijrah in, in order to perform the lesser pilgrimage Umrah. And in doing so, the Prophet wasallam also brought along with him at least 70 large animals as sacrificial animals to be gifted to Allah in uh, Mecca. Having left the center of the city, uh, Masjid al-Nabi sallallahu alayhi wasallam, he traveled to the outskirts a few miles to, uh, to dhul Huleifa, uh, also known in modern times as Abyar Ali. And there the Prophet sallallahu wasallam camped. This was his favorite place for leaving Medina and for entering Medina. They would camp there normally on the way out, on the way back. And in fact, the Prophet ﷺ designated it as the miqat, meaning the station for the pilgrims of Medina. So, all the pilgrims of Medina, when they leave Medina, whether it's Hajj or Umrah, then their chosen and sunnah and preferred station for Ihram is the Dhul uh, Huleifa. So, there the Prophet ﷺ arrived, he camped. <coughs> He prayed Salat al-Dhuhr, and then he prepared himself by marking his sacrificial animals. I explained that last week, ishaar, And then he did Taqlid, i.e. he garlanded the animals with garlands in order to again mark them as sacrificial animals. And then the Prophet sallallahu alayhi entered into the sacred state of Ihram on that occasion, and thus began his journey for the Umrah of the sixth year of Hijrah. Prior to his departure, he was fearful about the response of the Quraysh, because for the first time, Muslims are actually travelling to the city of Mecca itself, after the Hijrah, six years after. And over the past few years, they've had the battles of Badr, of Uhud, The Battle of the Trench just a year earlier. So he was apprehensive about the reception that he would get. And in fact, he was concerned that the Quraysh would react violently. And therefore the Prophet ﷺ sought the support of some of the more powerful tribes around Medina. And he requested them to join him. But they made petty excuses الله يذكر في الفتح سيقول لك المخلفون من الاعراب شغلتنا اموالنا وأهلنا في يقولون بألسنتهم ما ليس في قلوبهم قل فمن يملك لكم من الله شيئا إن اراد بكم درا او اراد بكم نفعا بل كان الله بما تعملون خبيرا بل ظننتم ان لن ينقلب الرسول والمؤمنون الى اهليهم ابدا وزين ذلك في قلوبكم وَذَنَنْتُمْ ظن السَّوْءِ وَكُنْتُمْ قَوْمًا Allah says, those Bedouin who are kept behind, they will say to you that our wealth and our families have kept us preoccupied. Therefore we are unable to come out with you. So please seek forgiveness on our behalf. Allah says, they say with their tongues that which isn't in their hearts. Say to them in reply, so who then will protect you and save you from Allah if Allah wishes any harm for you or even good? Nay, verily Allah is well aware of what you are doing, rather, you actually thought that the Muslims, that the Messenger and the believers with him, sallallahu alaihi wasallam, would never return to their families, and this was beautified and ornamented in your hearts. And you thought ill, i.e., of the messengers and the believers, and you were a people who are destined to perish. This was Allah's answer to them, because they were lying when they came to the Prophet and said to him that we are preoccupied in our wealth and in our families, and we are unable to join you, therefore we seek your forgiveness, we apologize, and we request you to pray for us, pray for forgiveness. So they were being very hypocritical, that's what they said to the Prophet wasallam to his face, but behind him in his absence, they were mocking the believers. And the reason for them not joining the Messenger wasallam was specifically their belief that Allah mentions but يَنْقَلِبَ الرَّسُولُ وَالْمُؤْمِنُونَ إِلَىٰ Rather, you actually thought that the Messenger and the believers would never return to their families. Because what these Bedouin tribes were saying is that Muhammad, the son of Abdullah and his followers, they are embarking on a suicidal mission. Till now, the Quraysh have been traveling to Medina or towards Medina and facing them in the Battle of Badr, facing them in the Battle of Uhud, surrounding them and laying siege to them only a few months ago last year, and now they have the boldness to travel to Mecca, they are traveling to the lion's den, they will be massacred. And not one of them will survive, and they will never make it back. So why should we join them on a mission destined to end in death? So this was their real reason that they came and hypocritically said to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa We apologize, we are preoccupied with our families and wealth, seek forgiveness on our behalf. Honesty is such an important trait in Islam. Lying and hypocrisy are not just frowned upon but condemned in the worst of terms in the Quran and in the hadith of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa Then, so the Prophet ﷺ was apprehensive about the reaction of the Quraysh. So he requested them, but they didn't join him. Apart from that, the Prophet ﷺ took some measures, precautionary measures himself. And amongst the Sahaba, of the 1500, of course they all went with the intention of performing the Umrah. They were in the state of Ihram. But as a special measure, they were also lightly armed. And there was actually a contingent of cavalry of the Sahabar anhum with the Messenger Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. The Prophet was a leader, he was a head of the city-state of Medina. And whilst travelling for Umrah, he also did something else, which is that just before he left Dhul huleifa there was Someone from the tribe of Khuzar known as Busr Busr ibn, Busr ibn Sufyan. This Busr the Prophet ﷺ requested him to go to Mecca and act as a spy. So he dispatched Busr ibn Sufyan from Medina from as a spy to spy on the Quraysh and then to report back to him. So Busr ibn Sufyan uh, hurriedly left and made his way to Mecca and then the prophet sallallahu alaihi began his journey of umrah towards Mecca al mukarramah when the prophet sallallahu reached a place called rawha i'm going through these details because they're not mentioned here in the hadith but they are mentioned in other narrations when the prophet sallallahu traveled about 45 miles from Medina, he arrived at a place called Raha. There the Prophet ﷺ was given information, not by Busr, he, he was still on his way to Mecca, but through other sources that the Quraysh were gathering some not all of the Quraysh, but there were some people of the Quraysh they were gathering to launch an attack on him. So the Prophet ﷺ collected some of the Sahaba عنهم, and, under the leadership of Abu Qatada, عنهم, the Prophet ﷺ sent a small expeditionary force to a place called Ghayqa in order to block off this small group of the Quraysh who were planning to attack them. So Abu Qatada عنه, left with this small group of Sahaba, عنهم, they traveled to Ghayqa, which was away from Medina and Mecca, closer, in parallel to the Red Sea, and uh, t- towards the coast. And then there, there was nothing, so they made their way back and joined Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. Many years ago, in the commentary of Kitab al-Hajj, the Book of Pilgrimage, some of you may recall a hadith about a sahabi radiyallahu anhu and others who were in the state of Ihram and they came across some wild animals and they eyed them up because they were very eager to hunt them and capture them. But they were all in the state of Ihram. But one of them wasn't and he's the one, he sought their assistance but they smiled and they, but they didn't assist him. And this Sahabi, رضي الله عنه, caught the, uh, hunted the animal and then they had their meat. And eventually they took it to the Prophet wasallam as well. And they provided the whole story to him that we were in the state of ihram and... He wasn't, but he hunted. We were unable to help or assist. But those of you who can recall that story, that sahabi was Abu Qatada. And it was actually on this occasion when the Prophet sent them towards Ghayqa, a small group under the leadership of Abu Qatada. He was the only one who wasn't in a state of ihram. The others were all in ihram. And that's why they didn't hunt. But he wanted them to help him, but they refused. So this was on that occasion when they all came back, not having found the Quraysh or any anyone amongst the Quraysh. The Prophet ﷺ they met up with the Prophet ﷺ and joined his group, and they carried on towards Makkah al-Mukarramah. The Prophet ﷺ eventually arrived at a place called Rusfan. It's a large area, and this is about. 50 miles from Makkah al-Mukarramah. Now he has reached the vicinity of Makkah, 1500 Sahaba radiyallahu in the state of Ihram. And they are now about 50 miles away from Makkah. And the area is known as Usfa. There the Prophet sallallahu alayhi stopped. And a number of things happened there. Whilst he was there at Usfan, Busr ibn Sufyan, from the spy from Khuza'a, from the Khuza'a tribe, he had been to Mecca, he had carried out his espionage, and then he left Mecca and came to meet Rasulullah sallallahu wasallam, at Usfah. And there he gave him the full report of... The mindset of the Quraysh, what they were thinking, and what their plans were. So he came and he reported he reported to the Prophet wasallam that the Quraysh have discovered your plans of coming to Makkah Al-Mukarramah. And they are adamant that they will not allow you to enter the city in any way and not only are they going to prevent you from al-masjid al-haram and from the kaaba but they are they are actually going to battle with you and they are preparing for war they are dressing dressing up in armor many of them have dressed themselves in leopard skins in order to fight you The Arabs were a tribal people, and as part of their tribal warfare and their dress, although leopard skins would not do much in in way of protection or as heavy armour, but symbolically, like other tribal societies, they would wear the skins of wolves, of animals, of animals that they had hunted. So it was a symbolic thing. So they wore leopard skins as a symbolic gesture in order to fight with Rasulullah sallallahu on that occasion. So Busr ibn Sufyan, Sufyan came and mentioned all of this to Rasulullah sallallahu Then he also said that whilst they are making their preparations in Makkah al-Mukarramah to raise an army and fight with you, They've already dispatched a large cavalry unit under the leadership of, under the command of Khalid ibn Walid, and he is arriving any minutes now. So indeed, Khalid ibn Walid, who at that time still wasn't a Muslim, and he was the chosen cavalry commander of the Quraysh in all of their battles. He was their main cavalry general. So he had under his command 200 strong cavalry of the Quraysh. And they came specifically to cut off the Prophet ﷺ, to cut off his path, and to harass them, and wait for the larger army to leave Mecca and face the Muslims. So the Prophet ﷺ, upon receiving this news... He then decided, he waited till, well, I'll stop here. Now they are in Usfan, and the Quraysh, Khalid ibn al-Walid radiyallahu anhu has just arrived with his cavalry unit of 200 riders. And they have found the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa camped at Usfan. So, what happens? This is where the hadith actually begins here. I've g- given you the background from other narrations, but here they both said, The Prophet, sall- the Messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, left Ayy Madinah, Zaman al Hudaybiyati, at the time of Hudaybiyah. Until they were at some point of the journey, of the path, where? In Usfa, it doesn't mention here, but they were in Usfan. The Prophet said, إِنَّ خَالِدَ ابن الْوَلِيدِ بِالْغَمِينِ That Khalid ibn al is at Ghameen. Ghameen was another place. فِي خيلن how did the prophet sallallahu know this he's now reporting to the sahaba anhum what busr ibn sufyan has just his spy has just related to him so the prophet sallallahu said in khalid ibn al-walid indeed khalid ibn al-walid bil-ghameem is at ghamim fi khaylin liquraishin in a cavalry contingent of the Quraysh, taliyatan, which is out Reconnoitring as a reconnaissance party. So the 200 cavalry unit wasn't the bulk of their army, this was uh, a forward section acting as a recon- reconnaissance unit. That's the meaning of طليع, reconnaissance unit. For ذَاتَ الْيَمِينَ So the Prophet said, take the right. Now, we learn from other narrations that before the Prophet ﷺ had said this, well, sometime after the Prophet ﷺ had said this, on that occasion, Khalid ibn al had already arrived at some distance. So he was in the region. Ghmeen wasn't too far from Ushaq. And before the Muslims left from Usfan, something else happened there. Which was that whilst they were camped, the Khalid ibn al along with his cavalry unit came upon the Muslims. And he found them praying Dhuhr Salah. So, Khalid ibn al-Waleed said look we found them without them realizing so it was obvious that the they had come upon them in on, in surprise and the muslims hadn't realized how close Khalid ibn Walid had come so Khalid ibn Walid said why don't we launch an attack on them by which time the muslims had completed their Dhuhr salah so Khalid ibn al-Waleed says that he then intended to launch an attack on them at their next prayer, which was Asr. But in between Dhuhr and Asr, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed the verses of Salatul Khawf, of the prayer of fear. And so at Asr salah, the Prophet sallallahu and the Sahaba Anhum changed their whole procedure of salah. And the way it was performed, as per instructions of the Qur'an, is, As Allah says, That when you are traveling on, in the land, then there is no harm, there is no sin on you, that you truncate, you shorten. Or you reduce your prayer. If you are fearful that those who have disbelieved will distract you from your prayer. Then Allah mentions the actual procedure for salah. And this is interesting. For those who argue that hadith are an invention... Of three centuries later, and that only the Quran is reliable because it's an eyewitness account from the time of the Prophet sallallahu What we have witnessed with the Quran, we witness the same with the Hadith, in the sense that the sources of Islam are. Constantly ridiculed, devalued, and for centuries the argument was that the Quran is a forgery. Academics would argue that the Quran was compiled a few centuries after the Prophet was supposed to have lived. A few centuries. And then, with more and more serious and rigorous academic study, and gradually, as academics became more and more fair and impartial, the dates constantly get kept being moved back so. Now we accept that the Qur'an was written, was to be found, the Qur'an as we have it in its current form, was to be found actually in the third century of Islam. And then it kept on being shifted back a few decades to the second century of Islam. Then we now have evidence that it was uh, to be found in its current form even in the first century of Islam. And then only a few months ago, you may well a few weeks ago really, you may recall that in... At the University of Birmingham, some sections of the Qur'an were discovered, which dates back to the time, through radiocarbon dating, from the time of Rasulullah And, of course, it was a very important discovery. But the truth is that th- th- these sections are only part of a wider collection which is already to be found in other parts of the world. So the discovery is not as unique as in one way it was made out to be. Because it was actually sections of the Qur'an but of of a collection of manuscripts whose other parts from that collection are to be found elsewhere anyway. So, I didn't say anything at the time at all. Now, then, surprisingly, sometime later, the argument was that no, these same parchments actually predate the time of the Prophet So, they were shifted back not only a few centuries, but now... Even before Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa and then you had some who came along and claimed that, well, here you we are. We have proof now that Muhammad was not the author of the Qur'an, and in fact the Qur'an predates the uh, predates Muhammad, and therefore Muslims have a serious problem. Now, all of this that we witness with the Qur'an, we have witnessed and we will continue to witness with the Hadith. So the argument was that the hadith were medieval fabrications. And then the dates kept on being shifted back until the 3rd century. Now because of the six famous collections of hadith, Bukhari, Muslim, Tirmidhi, Nasi, Abu Dawud, Ibn Majah, these are normally regarded as canonical collections of hadith, but they're not canonical. Because the term canonical, if it's borrowed from, the, uh, from Christian terminology, suggests that these are the orthodox six collections of hadith which are canonical and all the other collections of hadith are not authentic and are unreliable and do not form part of the belief and doctrine and practice of the Muslims, which is far from the truth. The six canonical collections of hadith, as they are termed, are not to be treated in the same light as the four canonical gospels. So, the six collections of hadith, because they have always been regarded as the most famous, since the most senior of the six authors of hadith is Imam Bukhari, who passed away in 256, after hijrah. And all the others are younger than him, in the sense that they all passed away Some, some all within the same fifty sixty 60 years, Imam Bukhari died in 256 Hijri, Imam Muslim 261 Hijri, Imam Ibn Majah 273 Hijri, Imam Abu Dawud 275 Hijri, Imam Tirmidhi 279 Hijri, and Imam nasai 303 Hijri. So these are the... Uh, six collectors of hadith who are known as the more famous ones. Imam Bukhari is a most senior because he died in 256. So the common belief was that all the collections of hadith are forgeries and fabrications of the 3rd century of Islam. I.e. from the time of Bukhari. He was, a, he was the master forger. And all the others are his disciples. Then, of course, we have the voluminous... 27000 hadith collection of imam ahmad ibn hanbal who predates imam bukhari in terms of passing away uh, he died in 241 hijri 15 years before imam bukhari then we discuss, when then we have the collection of imam abu bakr ibn abi shayba again a massive collection of hadith al musannaf of Abu Bakr ibn Abi Shaybah, he died in 235 Hijri. Then they discovered, and we have the huge collection of Imam Abdul Razak al-San'ani, also known as al-Musannaf, which is highly regarded and considered very reliable. And he died in 211 Hijri. Then we have the the Mu'tah of Imam Malik, who died in 179 Hijri. And then now they even highly regard the collection of Imam Ma'mur ibn Rashid, who was the famous uh, teacher of Imam Abdul Razak. Many of Imam Abdul Razak's hadith are from Abdul Razak and Ma'mur. Imam Ma'mur ibn Rashid has a complete collection of hadith known as the Jami'. And what they discovered, when I say they discovered, we're not, I'm not talking about Muslim scholars, I'm talking about other academics. Otherwise, we've always had these collections, we've always regarded them. We have a whole completely different system. So when they found the complete written work and collection of Imam Ma'mar ibn Rashid, the jami'i, and they found that incorporated in the Musnad of Abdul Razak from 211, Imam Ma'mur ibn Rashid died in 154 Hijri. So the dates kept on being shifted back. And now, just like the Quran, it's widely believed in academic circles that the hadith stretch back at least. At least till the beginning of the second century of Islam. At least till the beginning. And as time will pass, and more and more discoveries will be made, the dates will continue to be shifted back further. We don't have that problem because we've always regarded the oral transmission to be more important than the written tradition. The written transmission was merely supportive. That's why we had all these oral transmissions. And as the manuscripts were continually discovered, the manuscripts were never in contradiction to the oral tradition. Never. So, going back to what I was saying earlier, those who argue that only the Qur'an is reliable, and the hadith were forgeries... One interesting question is, even they accept that Salah is the first pillar of Islam, the most important pillar of Islam. Yet how do you perform Salah? Nowhere in the Quran are the timings categorically mentioned of all five Salah, what I say by categorically mentioned in that there are no differences of opinion or that they cannot be interpreted differently. You don't have a categorical description of five daily prayers in the Qur'an. You don't. One. Two. Nowhere is the method and the procedure of salah ever explained. The only... Why did I start all this discussion? Because the only method and procedure of salah mentioned in the Qur'an is that of Salatul Khalf. Is that of the prayer of fear. Which I was just mentioning. So uh, in these verses these are the only verses in the Quran where the method of salah is described but it's actually the salah of khauf the prayer of fear and these verses were revealed when in at the time of Hudaybiyah, uh, when the prophet was camped at Rusfan and the sahaba radhiyallahu anhum under the watchful gaze of Khalid ibn Walid in the Quraysh they performed their asr salah how the Prophet was the imam, the sahaba radiallahu split into two groups, they began the salah together, and then they split their salah. So half of the group of Muslims would pray with the Prophet alaihi whilst the other half watched with him. Then he would continue with his salah, the first half would move back, and the other half would pray behind Rasulullah whilst the others watched over him and and then and then the others would finish their prayer individually so this was salatul khawf the prayer of fear which actually was whose verses were revealed and the the practice was first incorporated on this occasion at Usfam, at the time that Khalid ibn al-walid arrived with his cavalry unit and watched over the muslims in any case what the prophet sallallahu they were playing a cat and mouse game in the sense that the Khalid ibn walid didn't want to attack, or he felt he couldn't. It was supposed to be a reconnaissance unit. The Muslims obviously had no intention of fighting unless they were provoked into, as a defensive measure they would have. So the Prophet sallallahu remained camp. And then at night he told the Sahaba, عنهم, Since Khalid ibn walid had cut off the direct route for the Muslims from usfan to Makkah al-Mukarramah, and they realized that if they continued on that route, they would actually have to fight with Khalid ibn al-Walid and his cavalry unit. So, what the Prophet ﷺ said to them: "In Khalid ibn al-Walid fi khayl al That indeed Khalid ibn al-Walid is a ghamin with a cavalry contingent of the Quraysh, which is a reconnaissance unit. For dhat al so take the ride. Right. Of course. That language sounds very military. But the Prophet wasn't just the messenger of Allah He was the political leader of Al-Madinatul Munawwara, and he was the military commander. And therefore, on that occasion, even though he was dressed in ihram, he dispatched a spy to conduct espionage. And he took precautionary measures for his defense. Members of the Sahaba's group were armed. He had a cavalry unit himself, though it wasn't as large as that of the Quraysh. But his intention was not to fight. These were protective, precautionary, defensive measures. So the Prophet was at one and the same time, indeed, a messenger of Allah, a pilgrim, a diplomat. On this journey, a diplomat. A political leader, the head of the state of Medina, and a military commander. So this is why the language is such that... ...Khalid ibn al-Waleed is a Aghameen with a cavalry contingent acting as a reconnaissance unit. اليمين, so take the right. What the Prophet told the Sahaba, is that we won't continue on this path, we'll diverge to the right and then the prophet sallallahu he turned away from the beaten trodden path and he took a very difficult path right in the middle of the night he waited till night then he told the sahaba radiallahu anhum let's move so the sahaba radiallahu anhum all traveled and they broke well they broke their camp and they turned to the right and they went through extremely Difficult terrain. It was quite perilous and it was extremely difficult. It was a hazardous journey, and the Prophet was so grateful for the Sahaba following him in a state of ihram with their sacrificial animals, with their riding animals, crossing that difficult terrain away from the beaten path. They were climbing along mountainous terrain which was extremely difficult many of them were tripping imagine how difficult the journey was that the Prophet Sallallahu specifically on that occasion prayed and gave the glad tidings to the Sahaba that Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala will forgive those who have joined me on this stretch of the journey meaning turning away from the beaten path so he said, that ذَاتِ الْيَمِينِ So take the right. مَا شَعْرَ بِهِمْ حَتَّى إِذَاهُمْ بِقَطَرَةِ الْجَيْشِ So you see, this is all abridged and abbreviated here. The I'm giving you the background detail from other narrations. Prophet turned right, went through some perilous terrain, and then eventually he arrived at a mountain pass which was close to Hudaybiyah. And Khalid ibn al-Walid, who was milling around that area, he, along with his cavalry unit, didn't even realize that the Prophet ﷺ had left. Until when they again began scouting from a distance, far away from where they originally were, they realize that the Prophet ﷺ had taken a detour because, as the wording of the hadith is, for اللَّهِ ma bihim So by Allah, Khalid did not even realize about them until they were in the dust cloud of the army. Meaning when he saw the dust cloud rising from a distance in a completely different direction, did he realize that the Muslims are coming from a different direction. So what did Khalid ibn al-Walid do? Fan talaq, yarqud, niziran So Khalid ibn al-Walid began racing along with his whole cavalry unit, acting as a warner to the Quraysh. Wasar al-Nabi صلى الله عليه وسلم and the Prophet صلى الله عليه marched. Hatta ida kana bi al-thaniya alati yhabtu minha. Until when he arrived at that pass, Thaniyah, until when he arrived at that pass from which Yuhbatu alayhim ay Qurayshin minha, ay minhadhi Thaniyah, until when the Prophet arrived at that pass from which people would descend onto the Quraysh in Mecca, from this pass. So, what did the Prophet do? He took a detour, then he Went Instead of arriving from the northern area of Makkah al-Mukarramah, which would have been the expected journey from Medina, Prophet wasallam took a right, took a complete detour, went around, and eventually came from the west to Makkah al-Mukarramah. And when he arrived at that pass, which led people to Makkah, which normally people would use, coming from the west... To descend into Makkah. Uh, that's what's meant by, uh, they, uh, when he arrived at that pass from which people would descend upon the Quraysh. So when the Prophet arrived there, what happened? Barakat His mount sat down with him. So the Prophet and the Prophet marched. حَتَّىٰ إِذَا كَانَ بِالثَّنِيَّةِ الَّتِي Until when he was at that pass, يُحْبَطْ عَلَيْهِمْ مِنْهَا From which people would normally descend onto the Quraysh. So when he was on at that pass, just before Hudaybiyyah, what happened? Barakat بِهِ His mount sat down with him. So it refused to go further. الناس, so the Sahaba anhum said. The people said حل حل. حل حل means it was just their way of goading their animals. It was it's a sound. So حل حل. It's like bakh bakh, uff uff. So حل حل. and as I mentioned a few weeks ago for the students of Arabic all of these phrases in Arabic, you can pronounce them both ways. With a tanween, kasra, bil kasr al munawan, or bil sukun Meaning you can say, hal or halin, bakh or bakhin, uf or uffin. As the Quran says, uffin lakumah. So you can say uffin or uff. So it's an interesting point. In Arabic, all of these words, hal, uff, bakh, you can say with a sukun bakh, hal, uff. Or you can say as with a kasrah bit so uffin, bakhin, halin. So it's just a sound where uh, they, they would use a sound to call their animals. So people began to say, hal, hal, chal, chal, chal. Or come on, come on, get up, get up. So, hal hal, for alahat. So, they were saying hal hal, for alahat. So, the mount of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam became persistent. I won't use the word stubborn. Although, alaha yulihu ilhahan in Arabic, what does it mean? It means to be stubborn, to be obstinate. And the wording is used because it says for So a simple translation could be that the mount became stubborn, and camels are known for their obstinacy. But I won't use that translation. I'll say for people nas halhal. So people said halhal for So the mount persisted, persisted in remaining seated. So the people became frustrated, fakalun, and they said Khalaatil qaswa. Here, the mount is mentioned. Which mount was it? Before it just said mount, but the names is mentioned here. People began to say, Khala'atil Qaswa. Qaswa has become difficult. So Qaswa was the mount on which the Prophet was traveling. When he arrived at that pass, it sat down. So the people began saying, Hal Hal. So he persisted in remaining seated, they couldn't get it to move. So the people began saying, خَلَأَتِ الْقَسْوَى That قَسْوَى has become difficult. Like camels would. قَسْوَى has become difficult. And they repeated this. فَقَالُوا So they said, خَلَأَتِ الْقَسْوَى خَلَأَتِ الْقَسْوَى Qaswa "Qaswa has become difficult. Qaswa has become difficult. فَقَالَ النَّبِيُّ صَلَّى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمُ So the Prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم said, مَا خَلَأَتِ الْقَسْوَى Qaswa has not become difficult. وَمَا And neither is it its trait, neither is being difficult the trait or the character of Qaswa. وَلَكِنْ rather حَبَسَهَا حَابِسُ الفيل Rather the one who stopped the elephants, he is the one who has stopped Qaswa. So meaning Qaswa has sat down by the command of Allah. Qaswa was the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam's camel. Who was this Qaswa? We are now at the beginning of the month of Muharram, in the 1437th year of the hijrah of our master Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. He did hijrah. Remember the camel? That Abu Bakr radiyallahu two camels he had prepared, as I explained in the hadith of Hijrah. And he said, one of these is for you, Ya Rasulullah. And the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam said, Only with a price. Abu Bakr an insisted that the Prophet sallallahu take it as a gift. The Prophet sallallahu insisted on paying. 400 dirhams according to one narration, 800 dirhams according to another narration. But 400 seems more likely, it was 800 for both. And as I've mentioned repeatedly, the Prophet was fleeing Makkatul al-Mukarramah for his safety. The Quraysh were plotting to kill him. He was fleeing for his life. He was in mortal danger. And he and Abu Bakr as-Siddiq عنه, were to travel together. Most of the Sahaba عنهم, had left. Only the family members of the Prophet وسلم, and Abu Bakr as-Siddiq and the Mustab'afoon, meaning the weak and the oppressed and those who were unable to travel, only they remained behind in Mecca. Even in that condition, Abu Bakr said, Here is one of the camels for you, O Messenger of Allah. And he said, I will only take it by paying its price. And what was the price? 400 dirhams? Why did the Messenger وسلم, insist? Abu Bakr had already spent so much on the Messenger. He had given him his daughter. And the Prophet wasallam had accepted so many gifts from him. And the Muslims had accepted so many gifts from Abu Bakr. He had freed slaves, left, right, and center, men and women. He had donated to the cause of the Muslims who would spend on the poor and the needy and the destitute. He spent on the Sahaba. He spent lavishly on the Messenger wasallam. He gave him his daughter why on this occasion did the Prophet, وسلم, despite his, the mortal danger to his life, on that occasion he insist on paying for the camel himself and refusing to accept Abu Bakr's gift, as I explained. Why? Because the Messenger wanted to pay for his own hijrah so that his hijrah and its reward would be complete only for him. Even the messenger of Allah, our master, at the time of his hijrah, did not wish to rely on anybody else for his deen. Why should we, in our religion, rely on the donations of others? Should we not be paying for our own way in religion, for our deen? We consider it beneath us and undignified to receive benefits or to receive zakah and sadaqah, donations and charity for our milk and bread. Imagine if we were told that from now on you will have to go and collect your food from food banks and you stand in line and collect tins of baked beans and loaves of cheap bread. To feed your family. Or if someone comes to your house and says you and your children I think you are in need. Hereby I offer you milk, bread and cans of beans and tinned food for you to eat and for your family and your children. How would you feel? Wouldn't many of us consider this beneath us and undignified? Insulting in a way? By Allah, we do exactly the same in our religion. We do. We have masjids. We have masajid. We have madaris. We have religious charities and institutions. We want others to do the work for us. We want a masjid ready. Just to go in at our convenience. Pray for our personal selfish. Supposedly selfish relationship with Allah and then we wish to leave we want religious charities we want madaris, we want knowledge, we want ilm we want everything for free when are we paying? ask yourselves a question how often have you been into a masjid any masjid, it could be in any part of the world And how much of its facilities have you used? It's water, it's heating, it's gas, it's A.C. And ask yourself, how much have you paid towards it? At workplaces, at the coffee table, they have jars so that people put in 20 pence, 40 pence, 50 pence for the use of milk and coffee powder Coffee whitener and uh, and coffee and tea because nothing should be taken for free. We pay for a few drops of milk, we pay for a spoon, a teaspoon of coffee, we pay for a single tea bag in dunya. But when it comes to the deen of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, we spend hours in the masjid, we use electricity, we use gas, we use heating, we use water, we rely on religious charities, on masajid, on madaris for our worship, our education. But ask ourselves, let us ask ourselves, in proportion to all the benefits I have received in religion, how much have I paid? How much have I contributed? If what you have received is more, and I will say as a guarantee that for most of us we have received infinitely more than we have actually paid for in religion, then realize that your religion and your deen has come from the sacrifice, the sadaqah, the donations, and the charity of other people. Charity which you would not accept in dunya, but you have accepted in deen. If you do not expect and if you cannot tolerate the thought of others running around for your dunya and giving you your dunya in charity, how can we tolerate the idea of others making the sacrifice, others paying for our Akhirah and our Deen? Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam insisted on paying for his own camel When his life was under threat. So that his hijrah would be complete. That camel was Aswa, And he was young at the time. And pets are cute and adorable. And there are millions of pets belonging to millions of people all over the world. Possibly hundreds of millions of pets belonging to hundreds of millions of people. And billions of pets throughout history belonging to billions of people and in the future. But could there be any pet more fortunate than Qaswa? That was the camel, that was a young camel, she camel, it was a she camel, that the Prophet bought and rode on and did his hijrah. Qaswa was fortunate. To have carried the Messenger of Allah in Hijra, Qaswa was here on this occasion at Hudaybiyah in the journey. Qaswa, in the eighth year of Hijrah, marched into al Mukarramah carrying the conqueror Rasulullah. And Qaswa remained with him all the way till the end. And it survived the Prophet. Sallallahu alayhi wasallam. And they say it died during the time of Sayyidina Abu Bakr as Siddiq. And after the time, in fact, maybe even during the time of the Prophet وسلم, and definitely afterwards during the time of Abu Bakr as Siddiq, its favourite spot was Jannatul baqi He would stay there. So this was Qaswa. So people said, Qaswa sat down. People said, Hal Hal. But he persisted. So then people said, "Khalaatil Qaswa, Qaswa. Qaswa has become difficult. Qaswa has become difficult." So the Prophet sallallahu said, "Ma Khalaatil Qaswa? Qaswa has not become difficult, and nor is this the character of Qaswa. Walakin habasaha habisul Rather, that Lord who stopped the elephants from entering Mecca has stopped Qaswa from entering Mecca." Why? Why, did, why was Qaswa stopped? If the Prophet sallallahu had continued, Khalid ibn al-Walid had already bolted to Makkah al-Mukarramah, darted to Makkah to inform the Quraysh. They would have been prepared for battle and command. The Muslims would have continued because they were very close to Makkah now, and the two armies would have met and inevitably clashed but Allah Subhanahu wa Ta'ala wanted something else so Allah stopped the one who stopped the elephants meaning at the time of Abraha when Makkah, before the time of the Prophet sallallahu before his birth it was supposed to be invaded by Abraha with his army of elephants or with an elephant I've explained all of that in detail in the commentary of Surah Quraysh and Fīl. So do refer to that. So here the Prophet wasallam said, The Lord that stopped the elephant, stopped Then the Prophet said, By that Allah in whose hand rests my soul. لَا يَسْأَلُونِي خُطَّةً they will not ask me for any plan. Yu'adhimuna fiha in which they will honor and venerate the sanctities of Allah. Illa iyaha, except that I will give them that plan and agree to it. Meaning the Prophet ﷺ was intent on not fighting. And he, this was his spirit of compromise. So Qaswa sat down, and this was symbolic. So that he wouldn't go further and there wouldn't be any clash. And it was on that occasion that the Prophet ﷺ said, no matter what happens, as long as they make me an offer and agree to a plan, in which... Regardless of what happens to us, if the Quraysh give me a plan in which I see them venerating and honoring those things of which Allah has declared sacred, i.e. in which no sanctity of the Haram, of al-Masjid al-Haram, of the Kaaba will be violated, then I will agree to any of their plans. That was the spirits of compromise. Then the prophet he said that while seated on qaswa and qaswa was on the ground Then the prophet sallallahu prodded it, So it leapt up, it jumped up. Subhanallah. See, he sat down. Nobody could get it up. The prophet sallallahu declared his spirits of compromise, and then he prodded qaswa and qaswa jumped up. Then the Prophet wasallam turned away from them again, meaning even though he was now close to Makkah Al-Mukarramah, he again turned away from the path, and until حَتَّى نَزَلَ Until he descended at the furthest end of Hudaybiyyah, furthest end meaning at the furthest end away from Makkah Al-Mukarramah. So, in the region of Hudaybiyah, not the near end towards Mecca, but the furthest end away from Mecca al Mukarramah, in Hudaybiyah, the Prophet ﷺ descended there. And then many things took place. inshallah we will continue. From this, from this point next week. I pray that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala enable us to understand. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this lecture was delivered by Sheikh Abu Yusuf Riyadhul Haq and has been brought to you by Alkotha Productions. For additional lectures and products please visit www.akstore.com. We can also be contacted by phone on 0044 121 or by email via sales at akstore.com. Produced under licence by Alcotha Productions, all rights reserved for Alcotha Productions and the author. Any unauthorised distribution, broadcasting or public performance of this recording will constitute a violation of copyright.